It's good to be with you this morning. As we're in a time of worship this morning, sometimes confession is good for the soul. I wanted to give you a confession, let you know of a sin that I've committed, I'll just laid out there in front of you this morning, broken one of the Ten Commandments, the tenth one to be exact. Anybody know what the tenth commandment is? You're thinking through now, what is it? What's he going to say? The tenth commandment says, do not covet. My neighbors have the most beautiful azaleas that I covet every spring. Every day, in and out of my driveway, I look at their azaleas, and, and I look at mine. Puny, barely blooming, and theirs are huge and blooms that you can't even count. So there you have it. I covet my neighbor's azaleas. Is there something that you see in someone else that you desire, that you admire, that you wish was your own? I'm thinking specifically about maybe someone's spiritual life. You you envy their relationship that they have with God. You can tell that it's deep and it's rooted uh, and that God undergirds and supports them and carries them in a way that you wish you had as well. No more than me standing in my yard and looking at my neighbor's Isaiah's does that make mine get better than us standing from afar and looking at someone we trust and admire and wishing we had the same relationship that they have uh, with God that they do. I haven't tried new fertilizer. I haven't tried less sunlight or more sunlight. I haven't done anything really other than pruning them slightly to make my azaleas any better than they are. It takes work. 2,500 years ago, people saw uh, worship and attending worship as a privilege. It's something that they worked for, something they got ready to do. If you didn't, there might be a chance that you might not either get as much out of it or you might not even be allowed to be a part of worship. You didn't just show up. You got ready. We can leave this hour of worship this morning and head to a restaurant and place an order for a burger or a sandwich of some kind. And if we've got the money and we, we order it like we want it, the chances are we're going to get it just like we asked for it. We don't really have to put a whole lot of thought into ordering a sandwich. Worship's a bit different. We're not going to get out of what God wants us to get out of worship and what we deserve to give back to God if we don't have some intentionality into what we're doing. Our passage of scripture this morning is out of Psalm 15, and I think it invites the offering of our best selves to God in preparation for our worship as we open ourselves up to being further transformed by God in and through this hour of worship. So what is it that you do to prepare to enter into a time of worship? What is it that you do to prepare to enter into the very presence of the holy God? What best prepares you to enter into his presence, not only now, but in the future as well? I'd like to invite you to read along with me our psalm out of Psalm 15, either out of your Bible, there's a pew Bible in front of you, or from an electronic device. I'll be beginning with, with verse 1. O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? Those who walk blamelessly and do what is right and speak the truth from their heart, who do not slander with the tongue and do no evil to their friends, nor take up a reproach against their neighbors, in whose eyes the wicked are despised, but who honor those who fear the Lord, who stand by their oath even to their hurt, who do not lend money at interest and do not take a bribe against the innocent. Those who do these things shall never be moved. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So what's at issue when we come into God's presence? Who are we? What does God want us to be as we come? What does this text from a long ago and far away have for us in our markedly different context and identity today? Our psalm begins with a question, actually two questions in verse 1. The following verses lay out some requirements or some demands, and then it concludes by telling us the reward if we follow the demands that it sets forth what we might can get out of it. The first question is, O Lord, who may abide in your tent? And the second question is, who may dwell on your hill? When the psalmist uses the word abide, I believe he's got a connotation of a visit, perhaps something more short term. But when he changes and uses the word dwell in the second part of verse 1, it's more of a reference to residing on a more long-term basis. I sort of think of it as, as residing in the presence of the eternal God in heaven for eternity. So as we're thinking about abiding and dwelling and entering into the presence of God, keeping in mind the short-term and long-term uh, entering into the presence of God, what are those things that really prepare us to enter into God's presence. And I think this passage lays out some things that help us on an ongoing basis to prepare ourselves in the short term and long term to enter into God's holy presence. Many scholars identify this psalm as being written originally as a liturgy for entering into the courts of the temple, an entrance liturgy, if you will. In our context today, we don't use it as a checklist to say, have you done this, have you done that, have you done this? Okay, you can come on into worship. I certainly don't want to be at the one uh, with the checklist at the door letting you in or not. Rather, this morning I want to invite you and I to consider this psalm not as an entrance liturgy, but rather as an exit strategy. We enter into the sanctuary to worship. We've all come this morning to do that. But the question is, when we exit out these doors and go back into the world to be God's people, what are we called to do? Who are we called to be? What does God want of us and for us to further his kingdom? We'll often conclude every Sunday our worship service with a benediction or a blessing. And we'll say words such as, go in peace, and as you do, serve the Lord. So once we depart and walk out of this space, having been filled through our worship, what, what does God expect of you and me? How can we continually seek and prepare ourselves not only when we enter into this space, but other places to enter into God's presence? I think this psalm is much less concerned about what happens within the hour that one is in this room, but rather with what happens when one is back in the world on the outside. If you go back to the original Hebrew text for this psalm, the psalmist is utilizing participles to describe these demands or these actions. And what that does is that indicates ongoing action, not just a one-time thing, but these things are things that are asking of us on an ongoing basis. I think the answer to the first questions in verse 1 address several broad categories. It addresses how we should live our life, how we should talk, the importance of keeping our promises to other people, and how we use and share our money. Years ago, in a devotional thought uh, titled Abiding God with Cecil Sherman, he came up with a checklist out of Psalm 15, and I want to put those on the screen, and we'll talk about those briefly as we go through these. So these are the 10 things that Cecil Sherman, longtime pastor and leader within the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, pulled out of Psalm 15 that, that he saw. 
Number one, those who do what is right. He says to do what is right, in, in essence, is the doing of God's will. And what does God want of us? We could look to Micah 6, 8, to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. We can look to the commandment that Jesus set forth as the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. To do what is right is to do the essence of God's will. Secondly, Cecil Sherman says, those who speak the truth in their hearts. He says, sometimes what an individual is thinking isn't what comes out of their mouth. He says, when you speak truth from your heart, your thoughts and your speech rather are together in harmony. Third, Cecil says, those who do not slander with the tongue. I think this psalm challenges us to be judicious with our language. We need to be sure of the words that we speak, and God desires for our words to bless others, to lift others up, not to curse others or tear them down. Fourth, Cecil says, those who do no evil to their friends and the innocent. In other words, treating others as we would want to be treated. Fifth, Cecil says, those who do not take up a reproach against their neighbors. I think what he's getting at here is we can't hold on to little petty grievances with our neighbors and still find ourselves in community uh, with them. Number six, those in whose eyes the wicked are despised. Like God's own self, those who dwell with God, find themselves in the presence of God, despise wickedness. God isn't pleased when people do things that go against his will, but we live in a Genesis 3 world, and that's going to happen. God grieves when the choices are made that go against his will, and he desires for those who truly love him, who abide and dwell in his presence, to despise those that are wicked. Number seven, those who honor those who fear the Lord. As a community of faith, we're called to honor those who fear the Lord. Who we honor, who we lift up, who we respect, tells a lot about who we are as a person. Who is it, and why do we look up to and respect certain individuals? Number eight, those who stand by their oath, even to their own hurt. Cecil says it's about consistency, even in changing times and circumstances. We can think back to Daniel sitting in front of an open window and praying to his God. The king had made a decree about who and when you could pray, and Daniel's very life was in peril if he continued to pray as he had and committed to God to do, but he did it anyway. What about Abraham? Abraham set out on a journey to sacrifice his only son, who he had waited so long for, even to the point of pulling up the sword to take his life until the angel stopped him. What about the disciples and their willingness to leave behind family and home and the comforts, even knowing a place to have to sleep and where their food would come from, leaving behind because they told God they would follow no matter what the cost would be to them. Number nine, those who do not lend money at interest. Cecil says this was most likely intended for those that were uh, lending money at rates used in the 6th and 5th centuries before Christ that were anywhere of rates from 30 to 60%. They were any way they could finagle and go around uh, in a different angle and make more money, they were doing it. Cecil's saying if we lend money to a neighbor, it's not for us to make an extra buck off of it, but rather just to help someone who's in need. And finally, the tenth thing Cecil listed out of Psalm 15 was those who do not take a bribe against the innocent. One who does not do anything that gets in the way of justice being done. A bribe impedes truth and slows the process of justice down. 
A good person will have no part of a bribe that sells truth and buys misrepresentation. Any time that we enter into God's presence, be it in this room or in another setting, we should not do it routinely. We should not do it casually. When we worship God, when we enter into God's holy presence, it involves a commitment from us to live in the world, to love in our everyday lives the same way that we live in God's presence. I'm sure each of us could think about ways that we've thought about or planned for an exit strategy. Perhaps it was a transition from one job to the other. There's a certain sense of needing to wrap up one before you move to the next and begin something new. Perhaps it's planning for retirement or moving or finishing school and getting that first full-time job. Perhaps it was in the midst of a bad date. You're thinking about an exit strategy to get out of that. Uh, Perhaps it's in the midst of a long meeting that's going on and on and on. Is there a way to get out of this certain situation? The thing is, as we move from one thing to the other, if we don't think about it with an intentionality, we're not going to do it as well as we probably should or could. If we don't walk out these doors after this hour of worship with an intentionality of thinking about how the worship has impacted us and who God is calling us to be in the world in which we live, it's far too easy to slip into the ordinary, everyday routines that so often plague us and not give a thought of God until we enter back into this space again the next time we show up. As you know, uh, the Olympics are beginning in a couple of weeks in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. An influx of people from over 200 countries will be coming to the country of Brazil for those games. At the end of the games, there will still be work to be done. They have been years of preparations to get ready for this. You wouldn't know it since they haven't finished everything, but they've been working for a long time preparing for these folks to come. There's been a lot of controversy, as you've seen in the news, uh, of the games coming up. You've got security concerns and gangs that are staking out territory. You've got the Zika virus that everybody's concerned about. Venues not yet completed, bacteria in the water on the beaches, uh, and even the plight of the people who were forced from their homes to make way for these venues to go up to be constructed for this very thing. Feeding competitors and the Olympic officials uh, from these countries is one of the biggest challenges. At the 2012 Olympic Games, the dining hall catered to 16,000 people during the duration of the Olympics. The kitchen that's been built in Rio for the games to serve food is the size of two football fields and will be charged with the task of fixing 60,000 meals a day. With that much food and all the athletes, there will still certainly be leftover food. And thanks to a handful of celebrity chefs pitching in, they're going to redirect the cast-offs from the waste stream, the leftover food, so it won't go to waste. Beginning August 9th, chefs and activists Massimo Batura and David Hertz are going to work with others to salvage that leftover food from the Olympic Village Catering Services. They anticipate that they'll get their hands on about 12 tons of recovered kitchen scraps, enough that they say they'll be able to prepare 100 dinners each night throughout the competition. The meals will be cooked free of charge for the needy residents of the Lapa neighborhood, one of the slums, many of which got displaced for venues of the Olympics. The city donated space for the project, and construction crews have spent the last month or so preparing this uh, old, renovated, uh, empty storefront that after the games will continue to serve as a community hub with food-related programming and classes that will be taught. The individuals leading this effort have thought with intentionality about an exit strategy to put into place that ensures that these leftover resources aren't 
wasted, but are put to good use as much as possible. With intentionality, they've put thought into thinking about the neglected and meeting the needs of those neighbors that are right at their back door. The answer to the questions that are presented in verse 1 are spelled out in the demands that are set forth in verses 2 through 5a, as we saw on the checklist from Cecil Sherman, about who can enter into God's presence. But it's more than a checklist, I think. The demands really are set forth as a challenge for us of how we can live our everyday lives to more prepare ourselves to enter into God's presence in the interim, in the short term, and even in the long term. They're an exit strategy for us, if you will, as we depart from worship and seek God's presence throughout our everyday lives. The simple and demanding requirements are not all that dissimilar to the Lord's expectations of his disciples. They are a stark reminder of what the faithful, we the faithful, are asked to be, but also an embarrassing description of what we somehow so seldom are. Those who truly desire to dwell with God must be willing to abandon their own ability to control their lives and the world in which they live and instead to put our trust into God. And that's hard for us to do in our current society. The Cooperative Baptist Fellowship of North Carolina often will set forth a theme for the upcoming year and often the assembly will be around that theme. And in fact, in November, our Children's Missions Day are going to encompass their theme for this upcoming year. The theme for this upcoming year for the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship of North Carolina is As You Go, Equipping Laity for Missional Living. Rick Jordan had an article that he had written that was in the Nurturing Faith uh, publication back in the May-June publication that talked about this very thing, this very theme of, of CBF. And he says that churches are going to be answering the question over the next year is what is an as-you-go Christian? In the article, he defines an as-you-go Christian as those whose faith so saturate their lives that they demonstrate God's presence wherever they may be, at school, at work, at leisure, as they volunteer, and as they use their influence wherever they are. Members of the CBFNC Faith Formation Ministry Council team was charged with interviewing people that they considered to be as-you-go Christians. And then at a recent meeting, they shared some of the stories that they'd heard through those interviews. And I wanted to share a couple of those with you this morning. Tommy Gibson of Goldsboro is a 76-year-old retiree who never felt he had much to offer. He always wanted to be a giver, but he felt inadequate. In 2002, his sister invited him to help deliver meals on wheels. Since that first visit, this has become his ministry outside of the church, and to this day, he's still delivering Meals on Wheels. He says his life theme is a song, because I have been given much, I too must give. Tommy now takes food and love with him on the visits that he makes. One of the vendors on the council interviewed a teacher, and she said, I'm aware that I have to be very careful when I witness to my students. Thankfully, God is everywhere, so I use opportunities they create to share about God. Just today, a student raised his hand and said, God answered our prayers last night and went on to tell me how. I was able then to talk very briefly about God's goodness and faithfulness. These are just two stories that have come out of this conversation about what is an as-you-go Christian. The team members have talked about several principles that they discovered through their interviews they said, we can all be missional once we've built relationships. Relationships are so key with other individuals. They've learned that missions must be seen as a local, everyday experience rather than a trip 
or a simple offering of sending money somewhere else for somebody else to do something. And thirdly, you don't have to start a lot of new ministries, they've learned. Most laypersons are too busy to start something new, but can share through what they're already doing by using their jobs, hobbies, and community volunteerism as ministry venues. I loved how Rick Jordan concluded that article. He says that for the 21st century, the theme needs to be, you are the church. When you leave this building, you are taking the church from the building. Sundays are for training. The end of the worship service is not the finish line, but rather the starting line. So verse 1 addresses these two questions. Verses 2 through 5a lay out some requirements and some demands that we can live into to prepare ourselves to enter into God's presence. But what is the reward that, that is offered? The very last part, the very last sentence in the psalm says, Those who do these things shall never be moved. It doesn't say that we won't face trials. It doesn't say we won't face hardships or difficult circumstances in life. But as we prepare ourselves to enter into God's presence, it's a foundation that we can count on. It's held up for centuries. These things are rock solid. And those who do these things, in the verses preceding that, the text says, shall never be moved. God is our rock, even in the midst of our challenges. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. As rapidly as our society is changing, it's refreshing to hear something that's so steady and dependable. What's your exit strategy? To walk out of the doors this morning, to be who God's called you to be. He's given us all different gifts. He's given us all different talents, but at the heart of what God wants, God wants us to be in presence with him, both now and in the future for the long term. Without some intentionality in what we're doing, it's far easier to walk out of this building and to not give a thought about what impact this hour even made on us. Coming ready to worship is important, because if we're ready and prepared, what we offer back to God is going to be more fruitful and bless him more. But what we do once we leave this room, how we live in a world that so desperately needs to see and experience a loving God, says a lot about what God wants from us and for us. My neighbor has the most beautiful azaleas that I've seen. If I don't do anything about helping my own, I'm always going to covet theirs and wish I had something that I don't. The intentionality of an exit strategy. How we leave this place to be an as-you-go Christian makes a big difference as to how we live our life and the impact that we're allowed and God invites us to be a part of lifting up and building and bringing forth his kingdom. How can you and I best prepare to abide in God's presence? How can you and I best prepare not to just abide, but to dwell in the presence of the living God for eternity. It just might begin with intentionality and thinking about an exit strategy. We'll move into a time of response, and there's several ways that we have provided for you to respond here this morning. First and foremost, if you've never had the opportunity to publicly pro proclaim Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. To make a decision for Christ, I invite you to do that this morning. I'll be down at the front 
and we'll be happy to celebrate in that joy uh, with you. Perhaps you've been through Oakmont 101, and today you're ready to make Oakmont your official church family. In the back, we've got candles that you can uh, light. Our prayer stations are in the back as well. You can write a prayer card out knowing that every Monday morning we gather as a staff and pray over those cards and pray for and with you and the things that you're facing. We'll have two ministers in the back that will be happy to pray with you as well. Whatever it is that God is, is stirring in your heart, perhaps this morning you just need to sit and think about what's your exit strategy for leaving from this place to prepare your heart to be who God wants you to be be an as-you-go Christian in the world in which you live and the places and the people that you are around. However God stirs your heart and ask you to respond to worship, my prayer is that you will be open to the Spirit and Him moving to do that. So as we stand to sing our hymn, which will be printed, be, be on the uh, words will be on the screen, I invite you to move as you feel ready. <laughs> 